0: The Bible reading this morning comes from Revelation chapters 21 through to chapter 22. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, Prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief. Crying and pain will be no more, because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Write, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters and all liars, their share will be with the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He then carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, arrayed with, the, with God's glory, Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The city had a massive high wall with 12 gates, 12 angels were at the gates. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south and three gates on the west. The city wall had 12 foundations, and the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. The one who spoke with me had a gold-measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city is laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with a rod at 12,000 stadiae. Its length, width, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits according to human measurement, which the angel used. The building material of its wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first foundation is jasper the second, sapphire, the third, chalcedony, the fourth, emerald, the fifth, sardonyx, the sixth, carnelian, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the 10th, chrysophrase, the 11th, jacintha, and the 12th, amethyst. The 12 gates are 12 pearls, Each individual gate was made up of a single pearl. The main street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. I did not see a temple in it, because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, because the glory of God illuminates it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day, because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory, of, of honor, the, bring the glory and honor of the, all the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false." but only those written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray. Lord, we uh, come humbly before you now to seek your wisdom as we approach this uh, kind of final passages here in Scripture. Uh, And we pray for your insight. We pray that your spirit will move within our hearts and help us to hear what you want us to hear this morning and take away all the things that are not pure and right and true. And so we pray that you will give us insight and that your Holy Spirit will enliven your word and apply it to our hearts. I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, at last we are here. We're at the end of our series. We've walked from the garden to the garden city and 52 messages later, we arrive here in Revelation 21 twenty-one, twenty-two, in the city of God. And having walked this journey together, uh, I think we can now see what the, fine, what, the, what the golden thread is that ties the story uh, of Scripture together. It is the story of God coming to live with His people by dealing with their sin in Jesus Christ. And that really is what the whole of the Bible is all about. It starts in, in uh, the book of Genesis with God walking and talking with His people in the cool of the day. This was way back in the Garden of Eden. God was with His people and they felt no shame, there was no sin, there was no curse. They were completely open with each other and with God. And, and God looked at this situation and He declared that it was very good. But Then as sin enters into the world, Adam and Eve uh, choose to reject the good life that God had given them and they want to be their own god they decide they want to decide what is right and wrong for themselves and they take the fruit that God had forbidden them to eat from and they eat and in so doing they bring a curse into this world a curse that ultimately separates god from his people and in genesis chapter th- uh, 3 verse 8 all of a sudden we read that the man and the uh, and his wife heard the sound of the lord god walking in the garden uh, in the cool of the evening breeze and they hid from God. What had come to take place is that they knew that they were no longer fit to be in God's presence. Because if God met them in their sinful state, in His justice and righteousness and holiness, they would be destroyed. And this then becomes the main narrative that drives all of Scripture. How will this situation be resolved? How can a... Holy God come together with an unholy people? How can he live amongst his people? And as we've seen, as we've been looking through the Bible, God has stubbornly committed himself to his people. Around 120 times throughout scripture, God or one of his spokespeople declare that God will live amongst his people and that his people Uh, that he will be their God. Here's a couple of examples. Right back in Genesis 17 verse 8, when God makes the covenant with Abraham, he says, I will give his descendants, Abraham's descendants, the land of Canaan as their possession, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Exodus 6 verse 7, God says to the Israelites, I'm going to bring you up out of Egypt, I'm going to take you as my people, and I will be your God. And then later when Israel agrees to this covenant as a whole people, they they say to God, yes, we want you to be our God. God says, if you obey my covenant, you will be my possession and I will be your God. That's Exodus 19. And to show that indeed he was with his people, he he says, I want you to make me a a house, a tabernacle, a tent where I can be with you. And it's this perfectly cube-shaped uh, tent where, where, which represented the perfection of heaven. And so God would send His glory cloud to, to live within this tabernacle. And the tabernacle would be in the middle of God's people, in literally the middle of Israel's camp. And so God would come and, and be with His people, He would live amongst them. But of course, that didn't quite give them the same experience as what Adam and Eve had. They could not walk and talk with God if they did, they would, uh, if they came into God's presence without being ritualistically purified, they would die. And so there's this whole uh, priestly system that is set up. They had to make sacrifices and they could not enter into this perfectly cube-shaped uh, space where God dwelled. So God was with them, but his presence was fearsome and terrifying. If you entered into his presence without being purified, you would get burnt up. And There are a couple of examples where people even accidentally uh, did something to God, his ark or the place where he was and they were destroyed. And this is a real problem because the issue with the people is not the sin that is out there, out in the world, it was the sin that was in their hearts. The issue was not that the people um, (coughs) were somehow better and more pure than the nations around them and therefore they got to have God. No, in fact, when they encountered God, they would be destroyed because sin lives inside us. It follows us right from our conception, from the day of our birth to the day of our death, and we cannot escape it. And in fact, if you read through the book of Leviticus, you'll see uh, that, that God actually makes a provision for this. So, so while Israel was still in the desert uh, and meeting with His people in the tabernacle, He gives them this, uh, this law that when a woman gives birth to a child, she had to offer a sin offering for that child. Uh, actually, sorry, for herself. The very act of reproduction was tainted by sin. And you can read that in Le- uh, Leviticus 12. And so despite God's insistence that he will be with his people and that they will be his people and that he will be their God, this problem of sin remained. God cannot be with his people fully because sin remains. And yet again, Leviticus 26, he says, I will live among you, I will not reject you, I will walk amongst you, I will be your God and you will be my people. And so the story progresses again and again. And this problem is explored over the next two, 3,000 years. And the solution we find isn't good leadership. The book of Judges makes that clear. Every leader who does not have the Holy Spirit living in them is just worse than the one before, because sin is in here and not out there. And the solution isn't a good government. King Saul was a good king, but he turned to the idols that his wives brought with him uh, with them. And he worshipped these other gods. Because the issue is in here and not out there. And the solution isn't even a good king, because we have David, the best king, and yet he fails horribly when he takes his eyes off God and he turns to adultery and murder. Because his issue was in here and not out there. And all throughout the Old Testament, the same story is repeated. The issue is that God cannot live amongst us because we have an issue in here. And yet even in the midst of telling us about David, the author of Scripture, the Holy Spirit, reminds us that the story is not about David. After David becomes king in 2 Samuel 7 and Israel is finally at rest and it seems as if this this beautiful uh, theocracy of Israel has finally come to take shape, David says to God, You have established your people Israel to be your people forever and you, O Lord, have become their God. Again, that promise, we are reminded that God will be with his people. David highlights this promise that God will be their God and live amongst them. And he thinks to himself, Look at all the good that has happened in Israel and he cannot help but think, This must be it. This is finally God with us. And yet... God was not there, not fully. He was still living in the tent, in the tabernacle, separated from his people. The people live around the Lord, but not really amongst him. But God's will is set. He has promised that he will be, uh, he will live with his people, and he will be their God. And so when Solomon, next generation, starts building the temple for God, God again makes this promise in 1 Kings 6, I will dwell amongst the Israelites and I will not abandon my people. But the problem is not out there, the problem is in here. And so despite God's dogged insistence that he will be their God and they will be his people, that he will not abandon them, they, God's people, abandon him. And Israel turns from God and chases after foreign idols again and again, and they worship all these foreign gods, and finally, because of their broken covenant, they are carried off into exile, into Babylon. Israel is defeated. And in the middle of exile, when Israel reaps the reward they they had for continually rejecting God, God promises once again. In Isaiah, he says, one day, I'm going to create a new heaven, and a new earth. And the past events will not be remembered anymore, and the sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard in Jerusalem. And in the prophet Jeremiah prophesying at the same time, he says, this will happen because God himself will fix the issue in here. God promises to fix our hearts. He tells us in Jeremiah 24 that he will give the people a new heart. A heart that will know him. And so the promise comes again. They will be my people and I will be their God and they will turn to me with all their heart. And in Jeremiah, this promise that Israel will be God's people and that God will be their God is repeated five times in the book of Jeremiah, we read it. In the book of Ezekiel, again prophesying at the same time, he makes that promise six times. He promises it again in Hosea and three more times in the book of Zechariah. And then at last... God comes to dwell with his people. And the New Testament opens, and in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, we read that the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, that is, God with us. And as we've seen, Jesus shows people exactly what it means to be God's people when God is amongst them. What happens when God lives amongst us is that the dead are raised, the sick are healed, the brokenhearted are restored, the downtrodden are lifted up, sickness flees from him, demons scatter and submit to him, and even the wind and the waves obey him. And when God with us, that is Jesus, is born, the world changes forever. But the problem with humans remains... The problem is not out there, the problem is in here. And so what do we do with Emmanuel, with God, with us? We kill him and we put him on a cross and when he hangs on the cross he suffers the separation that, uh, from God, the Father, that has plagued all of us from the very beginning. That's why when Jesus hangs on the cross, just before he dies, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did God forsake him? He he forsook him because our sin was put on him. The sin that was in here, the sin that separated Adam and Eve from uh, from God and all of us from God, was placed on him and jesus takes the consequence for that on himself god had warned adam and eve hadn't he He said if you sin the reward is death do not eat or you will die romans puts it this way the wages of sin is is death the payment you get when you sin is death and so jesus takes death onto himself and he dies in our place And he dies completely separated from God the Father so that we would not have to. And so Emmanuel, God with us, dies as God's abandoned son for us. And this was necessary for us to be saved. It was necessary for God to do this, to achieve what he had promised that he would do. If he were to truly live amongst his people and have a relationship with them, then only through this way could this happen, through him taking the payment of sin on himself and dying in our place. And I should mention that this does not come as a surprise to Jesus. In the Trinity, God, Father, Son and Spirit, they had agreed already thousands of years before, that they would do this, that Jesus would die willingly to deal with this problem, to deal with the problem that lives in our hearts. And ultimately Jesus is resurrected and he commissions the church to spread the good news and the Holy Spirit comes a few weeks later and Emmanuel, that is God with us, goes to heaven and God sends his Spirit to live within us. And so now God is not just amongst us, He is within His people and He gives us this promise that one day, one day, He is going to fully bring into full realisation this promise that He will be our God and we will be His people. That God will live amongst His people one day in His fullness. And so while it is true now that God lives inside His people through the Holy Spirit you and I know that we aren't yet perfect. The problem of sin in our hearts is not fully taken away. We still turn from him. We still walk away from him. Yes, we turn and repent and we're thankful for our forgiveness and so on, but none of us who are Christians can claim that we will never sin again. But one day that will be us. And on that day, God will be with his people forever. He will bring into fruition this promise that he has made again and again throughout scripture. I will be their God and they will be my people and I will live amongst them. Chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is John quoting Isaiah as we've seen. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice saying, what does he say? Look, now God's dwelling place is with humanity and he will be with them and they will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and he will be their God. And the glimpse of that we see in Christ where the the dead are raised and the disease flees and all the bad stuff goes away, we see comes to fruition in its fullness. It will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more, grief, crying and pain will be no more because they belong to the old order of things and that's now gone. And so in chapter 21, verse 3, this promise that that forms this golden thread that travels throughout Scripture finally comes to fruition. A new heaven and a new earth is created. A whole new Jerusalem, a, a holy city from God out of heaven comes to earth. Now notice, it is coming out of heaven to earth. It's not Earth, as it were, going up to Heaven, but Heaven coming to Earth. God coming to live with His people. If we were to die before Jesus comes again, we go to this kind of heavenly, wonderful waiting place until eventually Heaven invades Earth. And when this happens, our attention is drawn to the conclusion of this final thread. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. He has finally come to live with his people. And this time, this time, there will be nothing that separates us from him anymore. Because God, uh, because not only will God's dwelling place be with humanity, he will live with them. They will be his peoples, plural, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And what a day that will be. How great it will be for us to finally get to live with God, completely separated from everything that separated us from Him. We will get to be with Him in His goodness and His love and His power and His holiness and His justice. And no part of His character will need to be shielded from us because we will be unseparated from Him forever because our sin itself will be gone. These two chapters make that perfectly clear. It tells us that there's no more temple in the city anymore. Why? Because the point of the temple, which was to deal with the issue of people's sin, is gone. And so God himself will light up the city. Um, Verse 27 tells us that nothing unclean will ever enter the city. No one who can commit sin could come in, because only believers will be there. We read again in chapter 2, verse 3, that there will no longer be any curse, that the the sin issue that has plagued us will be lifted. And the city itself is this perfect cube of 12,000 stadia in length, width and height. Now, that's somewhere between 1,800 kilometres to 2,500 kilometres. Like, it's a big cube. It's a massive city. But we're supposed to understand from this that it is bigger and better than anything this world could ever have produced. And the fact that it's a perfect cube reminds us of that tabernacle, that space where God was with his people in this perfect cube. And we're supposed to see and understand that, that um, there's as big and as wide and as tall as the city is, it is perfectly holy. In the future kingdom, there are no dark alleyways. There are no spaces of fear. Everyone who lives there only has the glory of Christ on their minds and no one will ever be able to even be selfish anymore or hurt anyone or be hurt by anyone. And as amazing and as wonderful as this city is and as big and as gigantic and as massive as the city is and as holy as the people are that live there, the fact is the, sin, or the curse of sin is gone And as wonderful as that is, there's something even more amazing about heaven. And that is that God will be there. We look forward to the coming kingdom not because our bodies are made whole or our ability to sin is gone or any of those sorts of things. We look forward to that because God will be there and we will be with him. We read in chapter 22 from verse five, uh, from verse 1. Then he shows me, showed me the river of life, of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the city's main street, the tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of nations, and there will no longer be any curse. And listen to this, the throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will worship him and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. God will be there. We will be there and we will see him face to face. All throughout the rest of Scripture, if you saw God face to face, you would be destroyed. You would be consumed by his burning fire. But here, again, like in the Garden of Eden, we will see God face to face. We can walk and talk with him and together we can rule over the spaces that God gives us to rule. You can read about that in verse 5. And so we find ourselves back again in a garden, But this garden has a different tree in the middle of it. And this garden is more wonderful than the Garden of Eden ever was because this is a garden city. And the tree isn't the tree that produces the knowledge of good and evil. This is a tree that produces life. And it will sustain God's people for all eternity. And God will look after us and we will worship him. And he will be our God and we will be his people. And that is how the story of Scripture finds its final fulfillment. And I don't know about you, but like the Apostle John, I look forward to this day with great anticipation. And like John, I say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. And he responds as he does at the end of Scripture. Yes, says Jesus, I am coming soon. This is true for all of us. This will happen. And in Jesus' timing, it will happen soon. And that is how we trace from the garden to the garden city. And I want to finish by quoting uh, a little children's song about the book of Revelation. So in the classic style of children's songs, it's a little bit quirky and the rhyming doesn't always work, but bear with me. What started in a garden where the Bible did begin has ended in a garden city free of pain and sin. Our journey is coming to a close, or a beginning I suppose. We can read this final book with ease if we focus on the forest and not the trees. Don't let details bog you down. Just back right up and take a look around because all these symbols tell a story of a God who comes in glory to destroy the evil that has made us proud. (laughs) Though the trouble is not yet done, we know the battle has been won. And though the symbols can be odd, they tell the story of a God who has a wonderful marvelous glorious victorious plan to set things right so we can live with him in the light and at last we find a very happy ending for the ones through jesus whom he calls his friends and you know it's going to be a celebration when at last we finish revelation let me pray Lord, what a gift this story is to us. What a gift you give us to be able to see and to know that this too is our future if we, through Jesus, believe in you. Lord, thank you for your dogged persistence to be our God and for us to be your people despite the sin that corrupts our hearts. Thank you for taking all the necessary steps, including even dying on the cross, to deal with our sin. How blessed we are to be your people. And so as we now consider what this means for us together, we pray that you will, through your Holy Spirit, enliven this in our hearts, that we may live for you throughout our lives here on earth, as we look forward to the day when once again we can see you face to face. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.